Today's Bible reading will be coming from 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through to chapter 2 verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, We make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of God. Christian, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. If we've not met, let me add my welcome. My name's Matt Fuller. It'd be lovely to uh, meet you. Say hello afterwards. But uh, we're continuing tonight to uh, look at the end of the book of 1 John. We made a start last week. Got four verses in. We'll pick up the pace. Do eight tonight. And uh, uh, so we're doubling the speed. Let's see how we get on. Let's pray. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, what a wonderful truth that you, the living God, are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. Father, thank you. That is, that is a marvelous truth that we need to know. There's no ambiguity in you. There is no uh, hint of anything wrong, no hint of sin or evil in you. You are absolutely perfect. And so, Father, as we hear your words and respond to your words, would you help us walk in the light? Not in darkness, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how much does uh, behavior matter for those who are Christians? A while ago, I um, was engaged in in conversation with a couple. The couple, uh, they were dating and sleeping together. Uh, So not married, uh, just dating. And uh, no sense of shame or sense of confession or really that they would doing anything wrong. I said, well, we're amused by, by this. But, but in conversation, it, it emerged, it, it went a, a bit like this. Well, look, we, we really fancied one another uh, and therefore we sort of were lusting, I guess. And we thought, well, God will forgive us that. So if God will forgive us that, we may as well sleep together. Because if he's going to forgive us, he may as well forgive us something we enjoy rather than something that's frustrating. Because that's what God does. He forgives us for the things we do wrong. So why not crack on and just enjoy ourselves? Pretty brazen. And John's response to that will be along the lines of verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live out the truth. 
if you call yourself a Christian, but carry on in deliberate, willful, unrepentant sin, you're deceiving yourself. You can't do that. You're either not a Christian or you're just very, very confused. You can't live that way, says John. Oh. If you were here last week, we said that 1 John is a letter of reassurance. That's not very reassuring. No, but the reassurance goes a bit like this. John is writing to a group of Christians and... um, well, the scenario is a little bit like this. If you're Imagine uh, for our church, or, or even just this congregation of uh, Christ Church, uh, all of a sudden, 50 people up sticks and leave. And uh, uh, say to those who remain here at church, we've moved on. We are enlightened. We've discovered uh, a higher plane of Christian living. And uh, we are spiritually superior to you. And you are very much medieval sort of Christians there at Christ Church Mayfair, you should come and join us because we're the impressive ones. We're mature. We're sophisticated in the Christian faith. And that's unsettling for the people who are left behind. If a big crowd went and some were your friends, you were, but oh, they, they say they've, they've moved, they've got the next thing. They're, they're more mature. They're more spiritual is the language we see in chapter 2. They've got a greater anointing, is the language uh, in chapter 4. What? But then any claim or any false teaching always claims superiority. That's why it's attractive. No one comes along and says, hey church, come and join us. We're rubbish at everything. No one ever says that because it's not a very appealing message. The message is always come and join us. We've moved on. We're more mature. We're more sophisticated. We're more spiritual. We've got greater gifts. And so John is writing to those left behind to say, don't be unsettled. You're the real deal. Now, it seems to me structurally that chapter 2 and verses 12 to 14 are probably right at the heart of the letter. These very deliberate words of reassurance. Let me just read you chapter 2, verse 12 uh, to 14. Just reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men. You have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the the evil one. I'm writing to you because I want you to know you've got the truth. If you wanted, we said last time, perhaps a one-verse summary of the letter, you get it in chapter 5 and verse 13. John gives his reason for writing. He says, I write these things to you, chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why is that, John? So that you may know you have eternal life. I want you to know you're the real deal. I want you to know that you have genuine biblical spirituality. I want you to know you have a genuine fellowship with God the Father and Christ his Son. Hold on. 
But as I, say, I think structurally, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 are kind of in the center, as it were. Uh, before that, you get um, uh, the section we begin tonight. So chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 11. I think it's somewhat dominated by the announcement, God is light and darkness is fading away. So recurrent themes of dark, light and darkness in this section. When you get the other side of chapter 2, uh, 12 to 14, you get the great announcement that God is love and the world is passing away. So I think it works a bit like that. But uh, uh, tonight and uh, this week, we're in the first chunk then. These themes of light and darkness. Uh, and that's what we begin to look at. You can see just in, in, in tonight's chunk, uh, we're looking at chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2. The theme that dominates is sin. So eight verses, but nine times, he addresses the issue of sin. So what we're going to see tonight is this. Here is a mark of the genuine Christian. And if you do this, be greatly reassured, says John. Here's the mark of the genuine Christian. The genuine Christian is aware of their sin, confesses their sin, and clings to Christ. Okay? Or you could phrase it differently, they want to walk in the light. So we're going to cut it that way with that sort of theme, because that's the, uh, the dominant theme in the section. We look at it like this. God is light. There's no darkness in him. Secondly, there are three deluded claims of darkness that the, uh, uh, the false lot are, are saying. And then thirdly, there's true walking in the light. Okay? So big statement, God is light, no darkness in him. Then two alternate paths. There are three false claims or deluded claims of darkness. And then there's true walking in the light. Let's look at that then. First then, God is light and there is no darkness in him. Verse 5, John writes this. Here is the message, or this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. God is light. And that's not an uncommon metaphor that the Bible uses uh, for God. It uses it in two senses, an intellectual sense and a moral sense, I guess you'd say. Um, intellectually, God is the source of revelation. Now, without God, you and I are stumbling around in darkness. We try to work out what's going on in this world, but we stumble and we'll get, make a mistake and get it wrong. And, you know, if you get up in the middle of the night, you need to visit the small room in the middle of the night or whatever it may be, you get up and you, you forget that there's all your housemate have left clothes on the floor and books on the stairs and you stumble because you can't see. You need the lights on to walk clearly. There's that sense, God is light. But the other sense the New Testament primarily would use it is, a, or the Bible, is a moral sense. He is a blazing white light. Have you ever been to a blast furnace? Now, the answer is probably no. Why would you go to a blast furnace? The, um, uh, I have with a friend who uh, was working at a factory at the time. I went along to see him at work. And, uh, you know, the genuine, seriously hot thing, you know, you've seen it on films at least or on the telly, you know, sparks flying everywhere. The, the iron is molten and is poured and is bright, bright, bright light. It is seriously hot. Well, that's the sort of sense of it. God is light. And you don't come near him. If there's anything impure in you, all impurities are burned off. If you happen for a great night out to go and visit a blast furnace, I don't know where you do it anymore in the UK, um, Port Talbot, anyway. But uh, if, you wanted to, if you took an ice cube and threw it in, it doesn't last very long. 
And, um, sorry about that. And uh, it's gone. God is moral perfection, blazing white light. Now, that is wonderful. It is wonderful that he is utterly pure. There's no ambiguity in God. Perfect justice. Perfect morally. There's no hint of anything wrong in him. That is wonderful. Apart from if you're corrupt like you and me. There's sin within us because we can't go anywhere near him naturally. God is light. Gloriously perfect. But you can't walk in the darkness and be in fellowship with him. You just can't put those two together. Okay? God is light. No darkness in him. Let's spend a bit more time then on these three deluded claims of darkness. Secondly, they come in verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. And here seem to be things that the, the false believers are suggesting. Let's take them in turn. So verse 6 is the first one. You see them in um, verse 6, if we claim, verse 8, if we claim, uh, verse 10, if we claim. If we suggest this, we're wrong, we're wrong, we're wrong, is what he's going to say. First then, verses 6 and 7. Here's the false claim. I'm a Christian who walks in darkness. Let me read verse 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So here, the mistake, the, the, the false claim is the one much like that couple I mentioned at the beginning. We're Christians, but we carry on living in our sinful lives. It's fine. There is no problem with that. And John says there is a very big problem with that. It's sin. And you're deluded. You're a liar. You're not living out the truth. So to walk in the light is to be characterized, not perfectly, but to be characterized by wanting to live like the Lord, listening to what he says and trying to follow him in obedience. To walk in darkness is, yeah, I'm a Christian, but meh, what does it matter what God says? I, I just got to do whatever I want. Or to think it in, in work categories, put it this way, uh, to walk in the light is a bit like you go to work tomorrow. And you receive uh, phone calls from your boss and emails from your boss. And you say, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll get that done by the end of the day. When do you need that? Tomorrow. I'll try really my best. Will it be done tomorrow? Is Wednesday all right? You try. You try to follow him. To walk in darkness is to negotiate somehow working from home. And you never answer the email. And you never take a phone call. And you don't actually care what your boss has to say. You just keep on saying, oh, I'm an employee, keep putting the money in my account on the first of the month or whatever it may be. Now, eventually, if you live like that, work like that, the boss is going to say, mm, no, no, you don't really work here. You're just not demonstrating anything like working here. Okay. To live in the light is to seek to follow the Lord in obedience so you get the contrast uh, between verses 6 and 7. If we, claim, if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie. It's just a lie. You can't do that. You're just not telling the truth. Contrast, verse 7, but. But here's the encouragement for the believers. But look, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, 
God is light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Wonderful. So you see, if, if we're walking in the light, it's just an indicator that we're Christians. If we're seeking to follow the Lord and turn away from sin and what we desire naturally to do, it's an indicator that we're genuinely purified by him. We're the real deal. But you see how he ties the work of Christ to the ongoing demonstration of it in verse 7. If, condition, we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. Just look ahead, you get the same idea in verse 9. If, conditional, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. By contrast, obviously, if we don't ever confess sin, he'll not forgive us. Because if you never confess sin, it's just a mark of walking in darkness. You're either seriously deluded or not a Christian, says John. But the Christian says, yeah, yeah, I need to confess my sin. Of course I do. So just let me try and put it in these terms to make sure we don't get alarmed. Cows. I'm no expert on cows, but here's some things I know. They moo. They eat grass. Some of them have udders. Not all. That's what they do. Four legs, that's another thing. Uh, so if you come across in a field a cow, and it's mooing, and it's eating grass, it's got four legs, it's got udders, then you think to yourself, well, that's probably a cow, because that's got all the marks of being a cow. Now, you and I this evening could drop to four legs, we could go out and dine on grass in Green Park. We could all have a go at mmm. That would not make us cows, just to be clear. Doing those things does not make you a cow. You can't make yourself a cow. But when you come across a creature, four legs, shaped like a cow, black and whitey like a cow, uh, udders, milk comes out, etc., uh, etc., et then it's got all the indicators of being a cow. If you're a Christian, you confess your sin, you try and walk in darkness. So, excuse me, you try and walk in the light. Now, those are just indicators of what you are. They don't make you a Christian. Trying to do the right thing, coming and confessing sin, doesn't, they don't automatically make you a Christian. They're just marks that you're on the road of light. You're walking the path of light because you are a Christian. Do you see the difference? We can't make ourselves cows, even if we do all the things that cows do. You could, forgive me, you could moo until the cows come home. That's terrible. That is terrible. You could moo until the cows come home. It wouldn't make you a bull or a cow. You can pretend, you can sort of do Christian-y type things. You can go to church and you can do some things which are right. It doesn't make you a Christian. But John is saying, look, can I just reassure you, if you're the sort of person who says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and you try to obey him, and you try to walk in the light and not walk in darkness, then that's really, just be encouraged. By contrast, if you're someone who says, yeah, I'm a Christian and I do what I want, yeah, I don't know, says John. You're either very confused or not a Christian at all. 
There's the first. I'm a Christian who walks in darkness. That's all right. No. No, says John. Here's the second bogus claim in verses 8 and 9. I'd put it, I'm a Christian who has no sin. Will be my second, the bogus, if we're trying to summarize it. I'm a Christian who has no sin. Let me read verses 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Wonderful. So here the claim seems to be, I'm a Christian, there's no sin in me. There is no inherent sinful nature within me, seems to be the claim here. How that fits with the first, you've got to work that out. There's sort of a variety of claims probably going on. But I'm a Christian and there's no sin in me now. That is very popular in the contemporary world. For people to say, humans are inherently good. There's nothing really wrong with humanity. Now, to my mind, that is the, 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 this is just one, of the one area of Christianity that is almost the very easiest thing to believe. The, the doctrine that Christians hold, that humans are inherently sinful and, and naturally evil, that is just empirically quite easy to demonstrate. In the great events of warfare, etc., etc., in the small events of just anger and irritation and falling out and, and, and having a problem with one another. But people still want to excuse themselves. Of course, of course. It's not me. I'm not a bad person. She made me do it. That's a timeless problem from the Garden of Eden. I, I, I know I lied, but you forced me to. No one forces you to. But it's very prevalent. Look, there's no problem with sin. There's no inherent issue within I don't know if this works, but uh, maybe work for those of you like uh, a little bit of musical. Uh, this is not a new thing, so I guess it's the last half century in particular this has become uh, uh, prevalent or, or, or uh, uh, increasingly common to hear people say, oh, humans, they're all good, they're all good, they're all good. Just plant them in the right soil and everything is good. Um, some would know, not all, not, this won't work for all, I just know that, but we'll just run with it anyway. Um, uh, a musical thing. 1957, and uh, Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim produced West Side Story. Anyone been to see that or even vaguely remember the film? Um, it's slightly dated in one sense, the film. Lots of men going, uh, a bit like that. But, um, you know, it's, it was meant to be a sort of, uh, hey, how do you do Romeo and Juliet for a modern audience? Well, you do it as two gangs having a fight uh, in New York. That's kind of how it works. But uh, anyway, it's very clever. And, and the, the, the lyrics are spectacularly clever across the board. There's one song in the middle of the film, uh, Officer Krupke. Um, ooh, one or two smile. One or two have actually heard that one. This is going better than I thought. The, um, uh, and, the, and the gist of it is, there's the whole gang, the Jets, uh, and they're hoodlums. They're minor criminals, thieving, you know, a bit of violent crime. And the sergeant, Officer Krupke, comes along and says, look, I'm going to arrest you. And they come out with this litany of excuses why they're not really bad people. So it starts off, the uh, Krupke tries to arrest one, and uh, the gang sing. To Officer Krupke, we're very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood. Deep down inside us, there is good. It's not our fault, it's mum and dad's fault. They didn't love us. Uh, and on it goes, so they pretend to, uh, to throw the, the kid to the judge. I got a bit confused, so I thought I'd write them down. So the, the judge, they pretend to appear before a judge. 
Have we got that? And so the judge says, hey, Officer Krupke, you're really a square. This boy don't need a judge. He needs an analyst's care. It's just his neurosis that ought to be curbed. He's psychologically disturbed. Look, it's not his fault. It's just, you know, he just needs to see a psychiatrist, sort him out, throw him to the psychiatrist, or the shrink, as they call him in the thing. Officer Krupke, you're really a slob. This boy don't need a doctor just to good on his job. Society's played him a terrible trick sociologically. It's not his fault. It's just the society he's grown up in that has made him bad. So look, because of that, send him to the social worker. They send him to the social worker. Officer Krupke, you've done it again. This boy don't need a job. He needs a year in the pen. It ain't just a question of misunderstood deep down inside him. He's no good. The social worker says, no, there is a problem in this child. There is a problem. There's a reason he keeps committing crimes. He's a wrong one. It is him to blame. So therefore put him in. But, but those first, it's just it's hilarious, really. From 1957, they're commentating, look, no one wants to take responsibility for their actions. But there is a problem with human nature. There is an inherent sinfulness within us. And anyone who's honest will admit that. But here, well, the claim seems to be, no, no problem with sin. I'm a Christian, no, no sin in me. So I'm a Christian who walks in darkness, six and seven. I'm a, I'm a Christian who has no sin, eight and nine. And then the last, slightly different verse 10, I'm a Christian who has not sinned. So not denying that there is a sinful nature, but denying that they're doing anything wrong now. So verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is in us. So here's the third bogus claim. Oh, I've not sinned anymore. Oh, I used to, but not anymore. I'm beyond that. Now, every so often within the Christian world, that bubbles up, generally known as perfectionism. You become a Christian and you follow my teaching uh, and you can be sinless. Again, it's that claim to a slightly higher form of Christianity. It bubbles up every now and again. I don't enjoy doing this. Let me just give you one example. One example of uh, a very popular Bible teacher, no need to name them probably, but very popular and you know, see their books in bookshops all the time, but puts it this way. She puts it like this. I don't know if we got it. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. All I was ever taught to say was, growing up, that is, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I'm not poor. I'm not miserable. And I'm not a sinner. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's what I was. And if I still am, then Jesus died in vain. Amen? No. Not amen. No, John would say, if you claim to be without sin, you're calling God a liar. Not amen to that, I'm afraid. No, once it's the heart of Christian experience is that we're both purified, loved by God, perfect in his sight, and yet simultaneously a sinner. That is the heart of Christian experience. We are both at the same time. You can't deny that, says John, and yet people do. People do, it happens all the time. 
So look at these, they're shoved up there as well. Do you see how this, this, there's some sort of progression to these claims? Verse six, if we walk in darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. Verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. Some sort of a downward progression there. We lie, we deceive ourselves, we call God a liar. You are utterly deluded if you say that there is no sin within you. By contrast, so there are the three deluded claims of darkness, okay? Let's look at the truth then. Let's look at true walking in the light. So by contrast, John wants to say to his audience, now look, you are the real deal. And two marks, two things that really stand out from genuine Christian faith. Confession of sins, trusting Jesus for atonement. Okay, let's just look at those briefly. First, here's the first mark, confession of sins. So we skipped over, let's go back to verse nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The genuine believer knows that they sin. They know that. They know that they do wrong. They know that if God's standard is, will you love me with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Will you love your neighbour as yourself? The genuine believer goes, I try, Lord, but I fail. Every day I fail. And the true believer knows that and comes back and says, I need your forgiveness. That is the mark of walking in light, saying, I've done wrong. Please forgive me. You never move on from that in the Christian life. You never stop sinning. You never do, not this side of heaven. It's one reason we'll always have a confession in a, uh, every church gathering such as this. We'll do it in a moment. It was it's just a signify a reminder this is the basis upon which we approach the Lord we confess our sins and trust in Jesus that that is how we're in relationship with him because we are always sinful and yet forgiven purified always both notice here in 1 John uh, uh, 1 verse 9 it is sins plural if we confess our sins so it isn't actually what we do Sunday by Sunday, just a general confession of sin. Yeah, I've bogged up a game, please forgive me. It's we confess our sins as far as is reasonable, sensible, as we're able. We confess individually the things we've done wrong. Now, there's a, some of us are incredibly introspective and hear that and think, right, well, I won't go to sleep tonight because I've got to think of everything I've done wrong in the last 29 years. And, and can, No, as far as you're able, is reasonable, yeah, there'd always be, you could always end your prayer with, and Father, forgive me for the things I don't even know I've done wrong. That's entirely right. But as far as possible, specifically. That's why it's a very healthy thing when you read your Bible in the morning, which I hope everyone does, really. You get up and read your Bible and pray in the morning. You read and whatever you read, think, oh, Lord, I, I don't do that. Whatever I've read about, I don't know, whatever it may be. Right about David failing to lead his family. I, I, I don't lead in the way I ought to. I confess that and I, I praise you that Jesus has forgiven me. I'm not being completely honest 
Well, I confess that and I thank you that Jesus was always honest and I'm forgiven. I, I haven't been pure sexually. I confess that and I, I am thankful that Jesus has paid for me. Actually, to start the day every day by preaching the gospel to yourself, by confessing sin and trusting in Christ is a very, very healthy place to be. And simply at the end of the day, to say, Lord, as I look back over the day, I know I've, I can think in particular, I was just far too forceful and demanding in that conversation. I was too lazy there. Forgive me those. Good night. And uh, it's kind of how it works for me. I sort of get halfway through and then that's uh, my own fault. But um, it's just very healthy. You keep short accounts with the Lord. Just give me, let me just dwell on that for a little more. Give me, th- let me give you three, uh, just little practical things. One, look, don't make excuses for your sin. That's very easy to do. Look, I, I, I'm sorry I shouted you, but you've undermined your apology straight away. I'm sorry I've shouted at you, but it was your fault. You provoked me. I didn't have much sleep last night. My neighbour had music on all night long, and I couldn't get. It. Yeah, okay, okay. Just say I've, I did wrong. Don't make excuses. Look, I got it wrong. I'm sorry. One, don't make excuses. Two, do make amends. Look, if you've stolen something, pay it back. If you've been unkind in your marriage, make amends. Agree to go to marriage counselling if it helps. If you've spoken wrongly of someone, apologise to them and go and tell the other people. Look, you know I told you that, whatever it is, laws is always angry, whatever it may be. Um, That was just untrue. That's unfair. It's just, you know, he was angry with me once and I sort of catastrophized that out and made it a big deal. It's not actually true. I I defamed him. I'm I'm sorry to say that to you and I'm sorry for him. Make amends. Okay. Don't make excuses. Do make amends. And three, pursue change. Pursue repentance and faith. Change unhelpful patterns of living. As Jesus would put it, look, if you're eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Do what it takes. Just three little things. Don't make excuses. Do make amends and do make change. But confess your sin. And here is the wonderful promise. And it is a wonderful promise. And there's a reason quite often 1 John 1 verse 9 gets read when we confess our sins. Because we need to know that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Okay. There's one first mark here, in particular, of true walking in the light, confession of sins. And the last little thing, trusting Jesus for atonement. You get this twice. First in verse seven. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Many of us will be familiar to that. There is nothing magical about blood. There is nothing mystical about red, viscous liquid. It's just a metaphor for violent, sacrificial death. That's what it is. So when he says it's the blood of Jesus, his son, that is the violent death of Jesus as a sacrifice in our place. That's what he means. That's what blood uh, always means. Nothing magical about the liquid. It's Jesus' sacrifice in our place that purifies us. But you get even more detail in chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. We'll finish here. Jesus is two unusual things. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you 
so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is two odd things, or to have them both. He's an advocate, that is a lawyer. And secondly, he's the sacrifice of atonement, or an atoning sacrifice. Now that is an unusual combination. Some here are lawyers. Not many are atoning sacrifices, and that's good and healthy uh, for you and for me. But that's an unusual, that's a very unusual sort of combination that Jesus is. An advocate, that is the lawyer that preaches for us. And an atoning sacrifice or the propitiation for our sins. That is, God is angry with sin. And Jesus is the one who comes and takes God's anger and takes it in himself. So the wrath of God, God's righteous judgment against sin, is absorbed in Jesus. Atoning sacrifice or propitiation. Now some would, let me just dwell on this for a moment. Uh, That's different from expiation. Just two minutes, careful thought. Uh, That's a word that became very popular in the 1930s by a man, C.H. Dodd, who was a a lecturer in uh, theology at Cambridge University. And uh, he said in his commentary on Romans, which can be very popular and influenced lots of people, and he wrote other books as well, uh, he said, look, what happens upon the cross is not that God is angry against sin and therefore judges sin. And therefore Jesus is punished in our place. No, 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 that's sort of, that's a sort of Greek idea. What happens is expiation. That on the cross, Jesus sort of gathers up all our sin and just sort of takes it away and brings it away. And so sin is never really dealt with. It's just thrown away. It's taken away. It's expiated. And the Bible, and here is one of those very clear places, no, what Jesus does is he's a sacrifice of atonement. He's propitiation. God is angry against sin that you and I commit. And either Jesus is punished in our place or will be punished by God on the day of judgment. Now, people don't like that because it means you need a savior to take God's judgment for you. It means that you have a serious problem before the Lord. But here we're told Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he is our advocate. So the the scene that the Bible sets up is this, that uh, one day we'll stand in God's courtroom and uh, either it's the final day or, yeah, it's the final day and uh, we stand there and we're called and we're summoned and here we are in the dock on on the day of judgment. And um, Jesus pops up as our lawyer, as our advocate, uh, and says, this is my client. Okay, says the judge. You call the judge the father. What do you have to say? Matt Fuller is guilty. He is absolutely guilty of not failing to love, of failing to love you and of failing to love his neighbor. He's completely guilty. But I have paid for him. Here is evidence. It's the cross. 
And so because his sentence has been paid, he must go free. And so Jesus there as our lawyer says, I demand justice. This man must go free for his sentence has been paid. It's a quirky courtroom because the father who's the judge says, of course that is true. We decided this before the creation of the world. Of course, you and I both know that, my son. So he's a quirky lawyer, but he is the lawyer we need. His evidence is the cross. What evidence have you got that Matt Fuller should go free? My blood. My violent, sacrificial death for him. That's the evidence that we need. That is true walking in the light. Christians confess their sin and they cling to the wrath-bearing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You and I wouldn't put it like chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I've been mulling on this. Very odd, these combinations together, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, says John, I write this so that you will not sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. Don't sin. Verse 2. But when you do, there's there's one who atones for you. There's a sacrifice of atonement. Don't sin, but when you do, there's a sacrifice of atonement. Now, which of those do you need to hear more tonight? I don't know. You've got to answer that question yourself. Some presumably think, do you know what? I do slightly claim these things. I do say I'm a Christian, but I, the, the, I know that I'm walking in this pattern and I, I need to sort it out. Yeah, you do. But confess your sin. And he's faithful and just and will forgive you. Get back on the part of light. Get back in walking the lightness. Um, others just need to know very more, very much once again oh, look, when you sin when you sin you do have one who pleads on your behalf Jesus himself is saying I've died for them I've paid for them it's very wonderful so C.H. Dodd was a Cambridge professor in 1931 had a big influence upon Cambridge over the next few years Famous story it was, quite famous, I don't know if it's famous actually at all, I heard it told by one man, Dick Lucas, a preacher over in the city a number of years ago. In 1955, Billy Graham came to town, uh, or came to Cambridge to speak at the Cambridge Mission in 1955, and the press were outraged, the press in Cambridge, and the Times of London in particular launched a campaign against him. Who is this American hick from the southern states of America coming over here? And we know what he preaches He preaches that Jesus died a violent death to pay for our sin. We know that's not true. Professor Dodd has taught us for years that Jesus just took away our sin. That Jesus took away our sin. He didn't die to bear the wrath of God. After this big press campaign, and by all accounts, Billy Graham was, oh, this is unusual. I don't face this sort of level of hostility normally. And so this is the story I heard from Dick Lucas, for the first three nights, I forget, he's preaching in St. Mary's, and 2,000 students and others squeezed into the building. And for the first three nights, Billy Graham preached these sort of intellectual, highfalutin uh, sort of sermons, and they were rubbish. And after three nights, uh, apparently so, after the third night, C.S. Lewis and John Stott went to see him and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're trying to preach sort of eloquent intellectual sermons. That's what C.S. Lewis does. He's good at that. You ain't good at that. Do what you're good at. Just give them the Bible. Okay. So the fourth night, he stands up and says, 
I want to tell you about sacrifice. And by all accounts, for just shy of an hour, he began in the book of Genesis, went through to the book of Revelation, and just explained every sacrifice for sin that there was throughout the Bible, and how always they're averting God's wrath against sin. And I heard this story from Dick Lucas. He said either side of he had a professor of divinity and a bishop in the Church of London, excuse me, the Church of England, both incandescent. Who is this man? What is this pagan message that he keeps talking about of blood sacrifice for sin? And 500 people became Christians that night. Because the true Christian knows that God is light. There's no darkness in him. They want to walk on the path of light. They know that there's sin within. They'll confess their sins and they'll cling to Jesus for atonement. Let's pray together. God is light, and there is no darkness in him. Father, knowing that, will we be those who seek, desire, long to walk in the light? Therefore, we confess our sin. We try to flee from sin. But we recognize the sin that's within us. We confess it and we cling to Jesus and seek to live for you. Father, thank you that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and forgive us and purify us through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we praise you in his name. Amen.